Hi, this is Mary and Sally, Executive Director of Event Planning for Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society, and I am here to invite you to our annual conference, Unity and Cohesion, Expanding the Circle and Strengthening the Bonds in Group Work. We are so pleased to have Marseille Turner as our keynote speaker, whose work centers around interracial dialogue and interracial engagement. We are also offering 10 institutes and 12 workshops by leaders from the Four Corners and as far away as New York and California. Seats are filling up, so buy your tickets now. You can go to fcgps.org backslash 2018 conference. Look forward to seeing you there. Thanks. Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm your host, Angelo Siliberti, and in this 50-minute hour, we will be featuring guests that use dynamic thinking and therapeutic interventions to bring about growth through group process. It's our hope that in listening to the podcast, you may just be inspired to think more deeply about your own experience in groups, as well as to hear what makes great group leaders tick. If you'd like to support the show, we would encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes. Also, check out our social media pages at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have any feedback for the podcast or ideas for feature guests, subjects, or panels, please feel free to email us at podcast at fcgps.org. We really appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events soon. So I'm your host, Angelo, broadcasting from beautiful Boulder, Colorado, and I'm inviting you to pull up a seat, lend an ear, and hear about what's happening in the ever-evolving circle of group dynamics. Well, we're very excited today on the Group Dynamics Dispatch to have Brian Rothberg. Brian Rothberg did his undergraduate at the University of Texas at Austin and medical school at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, Georgia. He did his residency at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and joined the faculty there in 2006. Brian is currently the medical director of the Outpatient Psychiatric Clinic at University of Colorado's Hospital. He teaches, supervises, and runs group at the clinic and has run workshops at the local and national level. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thanks for having me here, Angelo. It's wonderful to have you. It's great to be here. So typically the way I like to start off the show is by hearing from guests about how they got into this field to begin with. And you have such a big career with psychiatry and with group, and I'd love to hear anything you want to share with us about how you got into psychiatry. Well, I think that I need to go back to when I was young uh, because I think that had a lot to do with propelling me into mental health and into psychiatry. Uh, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I was a middle child. I had two brothers. Um, My parents have been together almost 50 years now. And there was a kind of an anxious streak that that ran through my family, uh, which now looking back, I have a better understanding of. But back then, I really didn't know how to put words to it. Uh, I also, I do notice about myself that with groups in general, in my personal life, I always seem to have kind of one foot in a group and one foot out of a group. So that I would have friends in certain groups, but not really be friends with the entire group. And that seemed to have been my pattern over the years. When I went to college, Uh, I both enjoyed my time in Austin, and I also started to have my first experiences with mental health problems. Uh, I started to get very anxious, have anxiety problems, and as well as having depressive episodes, which continued through medical school. Uh, I I did note at that time that I was really interested in going into medicine. I didn't know what kind of doctor I wanted to be, 
until I was having my own experiences with mental health difficulties. And that put me on the path, I think, to go into psychiatry. So by the time I entered medical school, uh, I knew I wanted to be a psychiatrist, partly to understand other people, and I think partly to understand myself. Mm -hmm. So going in was always kind of a personal, it was personally motivated. It was something you felt deeply within yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. In the culture of the family, if you don't mind me asking, I mean, you mentioned you kind of picked up on this feeling of anxiety, but was it something in the in, in the family that actually got talked about, feelings in that kind of way, or was this more a language you acquired through your education? I think within my family that talking about some of these issues was not easy, and I don't think I learned the language there to put to it, and I think I was one of the first in my family to really have more severe mental health problems. So I, I f feel like that I was more uh, forced to try to understand what was going on, where I think for some of my other family members, it was kind of a little more in the background uh, and maybe, you know, would come to the surface at different times, but mine was a little more severe. And so through kind of my w own work over the years, as well as my training and uh, working within mental health really helped me to start putting words to my own experience. Mm-hmm. So you were really kind of keyed in from an early age in your emotional life. And I'm yes. hearing you say like it was kind of, it was more at the forefront than maybe for other people. Yes. But that really led you in the direction of actually going into a career to specialize in that. Exactly. Cool. And then group, I mean, you mentioned your group experience from the very beginning was close with a few people, but overall um, not feeling a part of the larger group. Yes. And getting into group was a, a bit of an interesting experience for me. I was at the end of my residency and my uh, new director of the clinic who came from New York, uh, I started working with him as a fourth-year resident, and he said, you know, you should be running a group in addition to learning individual therapy, and I had no idea what it was like to lead a group. So I basically took a list of patients, and I called them up, and I said, hey, you want to be in a group? And it, I went through a lot of people on the list that had no screening for them. I just invited them to come to the group, and it was quite a wild ride in my first group. Uh, people were kind of all over the place. Uh, it, it, it was a hard group to run. Uh, and then I learned the hard way about screening for groups is really important. Uh, but it also really spoke to me in a couple ways. One is I started to understand more of process that I really hadn't been able to grasp in individual work. And there was something about the group experience that really pulled me in where I think a lot of my peers who maybe didn't have uh, the group experience, or, or even if they did, it didn't grab them like it grabbed me. Mm -hmm. So you got thrown in just from the very beginning, just an idea. Hey, why don't you run a group? The next thing you know, you're running one. Exactly. How many people were in that first group? Uh, I think we had it maybe six or seven people. Uh, so it was, it was a decent sized group. Sure. Where sometimes I've noticed over the years we've run groups with fewer because people either don't show up or for whatever reason. So they, yeah, I, I just started there from scratch. And that was one of my really first experiences of having kind of intense emotions in a group or one group. Uh, I was going on a long trip. Uh, my oldest son had uh, was very young then, and I was really stressed. And right before the end of the group, uh, I got very angry about something that was going on in the group and kind of blew up and everyone got quiet and the group kind of looked at me. And fortunately it was at the end. Uh, so I didn't really have to talk about it. And fortunately my supervisor was sitting in the room watching outside the group and he came up to me afterwards and he said, Brian, what, 
what happened? And I said to him, I, I have no idea. So it took me a little time to work through that and understand kind of all the things that went into why that I got so upset. Mm-hmm. To understand your counter-transference reaction to what was going on. Yes. Sure. Do they have group training for the, for the leaders in the psychiatric department? Uh, no training at all. No training at all. So <laughs> no training at that point. Learning by doing. Learning by doing. Uh, and that has really been my mission when I came on faculty was to set up uh, the group training for the residents, uh, for other faculty to learn how to run groups, uh, educating myself through going through organizations like the AGPA, the what was the COGPS, the Colorado Group Society, which is now the Four Corners uh, Group Society, um, and just connecting with a lot of different people around both the U.S. and, and around Denver and Boulder, actually. Mm-hmm. So you really sought it out for yourself. Yes. Yeah. And you, um, I'm thinking, actually, the place you and I initially met was in San Diego at AGPA. Yes, I remember uh, that. In 2010. I remember that fondly. Yeah, so um, would you be willing to talk about your experience with the uh, annual conference and with AGPA and how that, uh, how that impacted your career as a, as a group leader? Oh, of course. So my boss, uh, who I started working with near the end of my residency, had a colleague in New York before he left and said that I should probably go to the AGPA. And I, I really didn't know what that meant. I thought it would be good for uh, training for me. And he connected me with a, a man named Ken Pollock, who's a psychologist out of New York, who's been with the AGPA for many years. And I went in kind of blind and had my first institute experience, which was, I would say, kind of mind-blowing. It, it was a little much. I, I didn't know what to make of it. It took me kind of many years to work through it and more institutes to really understand that group experience, which I'd never really had before. So that was your first experience being a group member? Yes. Yes. So it, it was intense. Uh, and I wanted more of that. And the pickings in Denver were slim. Uh, there were some clinicians who had been doing group for many years, but they were aging out of the profession. And so I discovered this community up in Boulder uh, who had gone to Naropa University, who where I know that you also went, Angelo. And so I, I found a bit of a community to connect with and learned more about both being a leader and a member of a group. Where it's all process all the time. Where it's all process <laughs> all the time. Yeah. And you continue to go to AGPA and met mentors there? Or what was that experience like attending the annual conference? I think I went to about the next nine of 10 years or more. I think I took a year off when my middle daughter was born, and it was just a little much again to, to go to that. And I've, I've been going most years since then, and so I've uh, really counted on that as part of my group education and also getting a little bit of my own angst out mm-hmm. through that process and through the institutes there. So what was, what was that experience for you? Because um, it sounds like the, the entry to group training really happened for you as a member and being in the seat and experiencing the emotional intensity and the immediacy of what that experience is really like. And I'm curious, since you've dedicated so much of your life to education and educating psychiatrists and group leaders, your thoughts about uh, the role or the importance of being a group member to learn how to lead groups versus or in combination with kind of more theoretical or cognitive training. Well, I see, I see it running parallels with individual 
therapy, doing that with uh, patients or clients, and having being in your own individual therapy, as well as learning about groups, about being a leader and a member. And it's it's funny because many of the newer learners that I'm um, teaching who happen to be either psychiatric residents, social work interns, uh, and the like, they really want to learn how to be a leader. And when I talk to them about being a member, it doesn't really seem to have as much importance to them. And I almost have to uh, continuously talk to them about it, uh, the importance of that in the, in the two roles. People um, are like, I'm good. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I, I don't been, need to sit in that seat. I've been a member of a group, you know, on and off for many years. My family, this and that, I don't really need that. Right. So. so there's some resistance you have to work through in order to help them understand the importance that might actually be there for them in terms of trying to be an actual member of a group. Absolutely. And, and it's funny to watch them get just as uncomfortable as any new group forming. Uh, people will start making jokes, uh, get really uncomfortable, not know how to perceive me as kind of the leader of the group. Uh, it, even when you sit in a circle, kind of in a meeting, or uh, people will make jokes about, are we doing group therapy? Is this? Mm -hmm. And so there, there's a... Um, a bit of a misunderstanding sometimes about what it means to be both uh, in a therapy group and understand the dynamics of groups. Mm -hmm. And to actually be working, I think, that particular kind of edge. Because it seems like there's so many different ways to learn. There's the theoretical way to learn, but then there's actually being in the experience and exposing ourselves to um, the full range of our experience. And then I'm thinking about how that embodies us more as a group leader to actually understand viscerally what's going on for a group member when they're in one of our own groups. Right. And, and the risk of being in our own group and learning experientially can be high. I think there's a lot to gain there because if you're only learning theoretically, then it's very cognitive and very concrete and you don't have that connection with the, the visceral feelings that come up when you're sitting in a group uh, for the first time or for the hundredth time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I'm also thinking about um, AGPA and how it actually connects you to a broader network of professionals. And I think you've met some mentors through AGPA or at least connected you to other people in Colorado. And I know that's ended up how, how you got involved with COGPS at mm -hmm. the time. I'm curious, anything you might want to say about the, the mentors of the people that you met and the impact that that had on you in terms of being a group leader? Yes, one, one mentor sticks out. Uh, so I met a, a social worker in Denver. He happened to actually be in Denver, and his name was Dick Houston. And I'm not sure if Dick's around. I, you know, he moved out of Denver many years ago. Uh, and he was an, an older man, and he had been doing groups for years. And he had these witticisms that he would use when he was talking about being in a group or running a group. And he would say things such as, you know, it was wilder than a peach orchard boar. And I was like, Dick, what, what are you talking what about? What does that even mean, Dick? Yeah. And, and so he, he told me, and I even looked this up uh, a while back, where so boars who happen to be wandering around in peach orchards will often eat some of the peaches that have fallen off the trees. And they ferment, and basically they produce alcohol. And so when the boars eat those, they get really wild because basically they're drunk. And so uh, it's, it's a southern kind of uh, aphorism that's, that uh, people use to kind of describe things that are kind of wild and out of control. Mm -hmm. Wild and woolly. Yes. What a fun mentor. Yes. Do you he, ever find yourself uh, using those witticisms in group? I, I don't think I could deliver like he did. He just had such a delivery. He, he spent many years in Arkansas and honed the ability to, to throw in those witticisms that I have not mastered yet. Uh -huh. 
just just purely it just came to him so na- so, so naturally. naturally so yes. naturally yes and then you ended up getting involved with COGPS, which of course is now Four Corners, um, but you were quite involved on the board for a long time. And I'm curious, any recollections you have of that experience and what it was like to support group on the affiliate society level? Yes, I, I think what really strikes me about when I joined many years ago is the, the organization was in a little bit of a slump back then, and there were some people who had been very involved in the past and weren't involved, and there were... N- there was no one really taking up the torch. So I jumped in and started to connect with the many members just in the society. Uh, and then the, that kind of gained momentum, and then it dropped again, and then gained momentum again. And as this last bit of momentum was picking up, I decided to join the board. And it was a really great experience for me because I was able to you know, not only plan administratively for the um, experiences that we were putting on, uh, but I also got to hang out with like-minded people that uh, I could really bounce things off of. And then uh, even as part of our meetings, we would have an experience, like a brief experiential group, which I thought was pretty awesome that I really couldn't imagine doing that uh, back in my clinic with some of my uh, faculty and students that I was able to do with the board of Four Corners. Right. I mean, it's really something that uh, it's an opportunity for us to practice what we preach in terms of really using process group as a way to manage what's happening on the board itself. Yes. And really got to know people and take risks uh, because I feel in looking back that I was a little hindered in some ways of expressing more intense emotions. And you joked earlier, I think, when we were talking about, you know, in Naropa processing all things all the time. And it was really a very different environment for me, uh, watching people just openly express feelings towards each other and to have some safety around that and not to get mad at each other and not, um, you know, break up relationships around that. So it was a very different uh, community that I connected with here uh, in, in the Boulder region and was, that was part of Naropa. And, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes I try to explain that experience to people that I work with and they think, well, I, no, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you talking about? Why would you do that? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, and I'm also thinking that, you know, on that board, I think there's a real sense that um, our group, our organization has its own unconscious in that if we don't use those kind of forums as an opportunity to really talk about what's happening for us individually and what's happening for us as a group, those forces could really undermine the stability and the health of the organization as a whole. Right, right. And I noticed that some of those forces will come up without really being appreciated in some of the other venues that I'm in and can really wreak havoc. So I appreciated seeing those things brought to the forefront and, and handled in a different way uh, rather than some of the ways that I've seen in the past. Mm-hmm. And it is just such a different mode of interacting, of, of talking, of being with, with other people in and, and what's a professional setting. And I'm thinking about how you ended up leaving the COGPS board as you transitioned into your current role as the medical director and kind of um, taking on that particular seed of being a leader in an organizational setting. And we'd be curious, anything you might want to say both about that role as well as how you use your experience, experiences with group and your group knowledge in what is an organizational or a, a managerial kind of role? Yes, so uh, moving into a higher leadership role has been both exciting for me and kind of scary. 
Uh, I've been working for my boss for around, I don't know, 11, 12 years. And so I really uh, got to know him well and his style. And one of the things that I've really taken from my group learning is some of the techniques really to get any type of group going, whether it's a meeting or anything uh, within the professional setting, uh, just it's basic as people, all people talking in the meeting rather than allowing some people to be very quiet and others to, you know, be talking more. Um, I, I also noticed that I have my own leadership style, of course, uh, and I compare it to um, my mentor and boss, uh, Rob Feinstein, who uh, moved on to uh, the Dell Medical School in Austin, which is kind of funny. That's where I kind of originated coming before coming out here, and now he's there at their medical school. And I really have a philosophy of allowing the group to, co to come up with ideas in addition to some of the things that I may be thinking and see if organically and spontaneously we can come up with things that would be better rather than me trying to make all those decisions in a massive organization uh, that usually leads to some frustration. Well, that's huge. I mean, just to be using the group and really the wisdom of the group rather than just having it come from the leadership role. It sounds like both it's, it's more engaging for them and it helps you, it insulates you in terms of uh, the responsibilities you're carrying and really helps everybody to be interacting and engaging together. Right. And it's funny, sometimes I'll offer to some of our clinicians or trainees to run some of the meetings to try to use these. And sometimes they take me up on it oftentimes like, no, you, you do it well. You, you can take it. Mm -hmm. Do you have a particular frame you use um, or a particular order or routine to help get everybody's voice in the room? I, I uh, That's a good question. I haven't really thought about that in that way. I, I've really noticed that when you have a meeting versus maybe a psychotherapy group that agenda is very important and even in some psychotherapy groups an agenda can be important a as well as having actionable items and not spending too long on one thing or being superficial on other things that there's a, a real fine line about uh, having a, a really good meeting versus just a, a good meeting mm -hmm. yeah, well it's really a task group yes yeah to get through these different kinds of things but it seems like you value and you try to bring in the process components where you can mm -hmm. or you're thinking about it in terms of who's talking who's not how can you find out if the group's actually thinking along the same lines that you are right and being more comfortable with letting the group uh, play out as it would such as i had an experience where i learned a lot about service animals um, coincidentally because I was running a group and a patient asked to have a service animal come in and I didn't really even know what that was and how that would come into the group and I tried to stop it and learned quickly that there are laws uh, through the ADA that protects people to do that and we ended up having the dog come in uh, and it turned out to be a very um, difficult experience because the dog was poorly trained and had a lot of problems in the group and we ultimately had to ban the dog from the clinic. And I ended up writing a paper about it uh, because I, I wanted to understand more about what a service animal was and how that would interact with mental health and really what um, what power we have in order to allow or not allow these animals in and w what kind of rules are around uh, patients bringing them in. So it was quite an experience. I had never would have thought that I would be writing a paper or having experience with a service dog in a psychodynamic psychotherapy group. Right. <laughs> yeah. How spontaneous would that be? 
What, uh, yeah, I'm curious anything you ended up finding about that, because there might be people that are listening to this that are facing similar dilemmas and any thoughts you have on what it's like to end up having an animal within the group. Well, I, I learned that there's a big distinction between service animals and emotional support animals, and there's a lot of other terminology around uh, the service that a an animal could provide for a person, especially some, someone who has a mental illness, and that only a service animal is covered by law, and a service animal can only be a dog or a miniature horse, and I always love that, and people say, well, why a miniature horse, and I think it's because it has to be big enough to uh, to help someone who may have physical disabilities get around. I've never personally seen a miniature horse Interesting, uh, yeah. in a public space, but I've seen many dogs yeah. uh, in that thing. So I think there's that one distinction that's uh, very important. And two, really, you're somewhat limited about what you can even ask uh, a patient about a service animal, and they don't need to be wearing a vest. They don't have to have any papers. Uh, you can basically just bring it in as a service animal and um, unless you're questioned, it can it can serve a, a task for you, which it, is interesting f- to, to learn about. That is interesting. So the role is totally in- incognito. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and I'm curious, Brian, to hear you talk about, since you are the medical director, what's your impression of how group is currently thought about or conceived or, or valued in psychiatric departments? That's been quite a learning experience for me in that I... Uh, was listening to your podcast with Irving Yalom, and he was talking about how he had started some groups in the 60s and got them running, and and I thought, wow, that, that was kind of a nice era when everybody was into groups, and I was thinking about how that's so different now that groups seem to be having a renaissance of some sort, but there is also a lot of hesitation in departments uh, with patients of even joining groups. So it's really a more of an uphill battle now to get uh, groups into programs and to really part of psychiatric training as psychiatrists have moved away from uh, really learning intensive psychotherapy and group therapy. I think it's a, a bit of a, uh, a lost opportunity mm-hmm. to, to learn some wonderful skills. And, and we've tried to preserve that uh, in our residency training program. And also we have a special track for residents who want to learn more intensive psychotherapy uh, that I'm part of as well, teaching individual as well as uh, about groups. What do you think drives that hesitancy? I think if I can boil it down to just one thing is that people often say that I don't, when I go into a group, I don't want to hear other people's problems or like that stuff's not important to me or they won't listen to me. And that and might be exactly why they're having problems in their relational life outside. Exactly. And what they're b- basically saying is that will people hear me and see me uh, or will they be so focused on themselves that, that I won't register to them and that would be very painful. So there's kind of this idea that gets people to want to avoid groups that uh, there's either room for me or there's not versus how interacting with other people might actually help create room for both the other person and oneself. Exactly, and, and how mental health problems can be so isolating and, and ruin relationships and that people learn to live without the sustenance that you get from these relationships. And so when they come in for help and you say that talking to some of their peers may be helpful to them, it's terrifying because they may have come from abusive backgrounds where the people they trusted uh, mistreated them. And so 
they're very hesitant uh, to come into the groups and, and be around peers and, and even clinicians sometimes. They want that one-on-one because it feels somewhat safe, but it may not push them the way it should. Sure. Well, and that makes me actually wonder about the parallel process component because you have the hesitancy from the, from the clients and the patients. And then I also wonder for your residents and for your clinicians, their ideas about group, their hesitancies, wh- what, what level of familiarity are a lot of your residents coming in having had or pr- a ex- prior experiences, both positively and negatively? Or do you find that they come in just not having any reference point for group at all? Uh, they either have what I would say is no reference point or they've had negative experience in either being a member of a group or running a group. And they have very limited exposure such as um, being asked to run an inpatient group either by themselves or with someone else who has little to no group training. And those can be really hard groups to run. And then when they don't go well, um, it leaves a bad taste in their mouth. And so they come to us in the outpatient experience, and they've really never had a good group experience. And so then I'm uh, a little bit behind the eight ball trying to get them to think about groups and doing groups in a different way. Mm-hmm. And in the past, it would be mostly through teaching and, and the didactic lectures and those types of things where now in, the, in our clinic, we have group opportunities for most of our trainees to really learn about either dynamic processes, DBT in the group setting, mindfulness techniques. So having a little bit more support and structure as well as having the experience of running these groups is so important for them uh, to be even thoughtful uh, or interested in running groups in their practice in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm thinking that um, for people who've been in inpatient settings and try to run group where, you know, I was thinking about Dr. Yalom's work where he really looked at some of the differences that needed to be in place between structure and support for an outpatient group versus an inpatient group. And thinking about an inpatient settings where groups can go sideways, it can really be a challenge. And I can imagine there might be scar tissue there for group leaders or clinicians that have been in that kind of setting, trying to help them to understand there's different ways to go about it, and they might want to give group a chance again. I would imagine that you're kind of working with all sorts of different reactions. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not as, as sure with other uh, training backgrounds of clinicians and just knowing specifically about psychiatric residents is that they start their training both in medical school, whether they're in internal medicine or all the different type of specialties within medicine, and then when they come into residency, they're doing very intense work. They're working with people on the inpatient units or grossly psychotic or manic uh, or on consult services where people are uh, gravely medically ill and so they see some really intense things so by the time they get to us and the outpatient experience they don't know what to expect right. uh, about working with people on a more uh, long-term experience and and why and how those relationships are so different than when someone's really ill sure well i'd like to put to you a pretty tough question then because that you know, you as a as a medical director as a psychiatrist really um you have such a value for group. And I'm curious, since it's such a a thing that you've kind of taken on, what do you think we do? How do you think we do address this? The hesitancy, how do do you think that we might, or what might be some of the options for helping people, helping clinicians and residents, as well as patients, to understand the opportunity that group provides? Uh, My experience has been a a multi-prong approach uh, hitting it on all fronts now that I look back uh, in my experience in, in teaching and helping people to learn to be in groups. It's been from 
starting lectures about group at the very beginning of a resident's third year, which is when they come to an outpatient experience. Uh, it's being in multidisciplinary groups and talking about how to refer patients to groups. It's um, getting them to be aware that there are opportunities to be members of groups. Um, it's getting the culture of our clinic, which took some time too, so people are even talking about that or even patients will be asking about it. Like, I've been in a group before. Do you all have any groups? So I think, for, and I'm spoiled uh, working in an ap academic medical center that I have a little bit of time to, to, to run these groups, to teach group, to supervise. And so it really, uh, it's been important to me to have these opportunities um, to bring uh, a sense of accomplishment in, in my work where I may not find that in other treatment venues. Sure. Well, it seems like you just, you, um, it's got to be at the forefront of people's minds and it has to continue to appear um, in their kind of field of awareness in terms of group as an opportunity, how it works, the, op the ways that they can use it, the ways they can think about patient selection for different groups. It seems like we've got to make a uh, kind of a case and sort of join them, I'm hearing cognitively, mm -hmm. in terms of helping them to understand the ways it really might be a benefit. And also training some of our other staff to feel confident to be a go-to person where I'm not the only person in the department that is the so-called expert in group. I feel very much not even close to being an expert in a group. When I'm around people who have been do running groups for about 40 years uh, and watching them do it, then I say, like, that is an expert in running a group. And I think about myself, who's only been doing it maybe 12, 13 years, I feel like a neophyte mm -hmm. <laughs> in the group experience. Lifelong learning, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm also curious, Brian, anything you might say personally around um, deciding to move in that path as a psychiatrist and more of a, a director, an academic kind of role, a teaching, supervising role versus private practice? And what is it about being in that kind of context that's appealed to you more than running groups in a kind of private practice scenario? When I went to residency, my fantasy of what I'd be doing really was working in private practice. And throughout my training, uh, just learning about academic medicine, as well as having uh, a year off during my residency. I went overseas, and I, I taught English. I needed a break. Uh, I ended up spending some time in Japan. And w what a wonderful learning experience being an English teacher in Japan. Where in Japan uh, were you? Uh, I was uh, right at the Mount, uh, excuse me, the base of Mount Fuji for some uh -huh. time in Nagoya uh -huh. uh, for about another six months. So I was there for about a year. And, and I learned that there is some skills that one brings to being a teacher. And so when I went back into my residency training, I realized that, that some of the faculty were excellent teachers and some didn't do as well. And it's really started to interest me more uh, about teaching and working with learners. And as I got uh, towards the end of my residency training, I had the opportunity to take over a faculty position, uh, which I jumped at. And realized that kind of the diversity of what I do, um, working with people who are both learning the trade as well as people who are much my senior, who I go to uh, for consultation at any time. They're around me uh, at all hours, it feels like, uh, that I have this um, uh, special uh, place that I can go to get quick consultation that in private practice I may or may not be able to get. And that can be a little bit isolating 
um, place as well. And so the academic world has really been very nurturing for me Mm -hmm. over the years. Being able to be in different roles and to have access to different people and just to be a part of a community, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been working with student mental health for our health science students. Um, I've been on what's called our care team that works with students who are struggling. And I interact with lawyers and police officers and deans of schools. And so th- those things can be really fun. And you realize there's a lot going on behind the scenes for uh, these universities and, and helping people to have um, um, to really focus on their mental health. And I had a really nice experience on a mental health panel. So I joined a faculty panel to talk about my own experience with mental health problems. And I spoke in front of about 70 or 80 people, and it really made me much more comfortable talking openly about my problems in the past that I done, didn't really talk about years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm appreciating how much courage that takes to do that among peers and um, people that you might be in mixed roles with and to have that level of vulnerability. What, what, what kind of responses did you get? Well, one of my uh, friends and, and fellow faculty members, she came and, and was very supportive and like, I think asked the question and I was like, and I, I really felt supported there. And I think at least one of my residents came and and I thanked her for coming, and she didn't realize that I was going to be there and be one of the people on the panel. And, and people were very, very nice and very supportive to my experience, and it wasn't as big deal. I was really nervous so prior to the panel. I was, you know, kind of had that shaky hand, and I was sweating, and my, you know, the voice was changing a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I settled in, and it went very well. That's very cool. I mean, you mentioned that in some of these different contexts, you do see some places where group is having a resurgence. And it's different than the way it was uh, when it was kind of at its zeitgeist in the 60s, 70s. But how do you see it coming back in terms of an, of an interest now? What, what form is that taking and what are your thoughts about it? Well, with the different theories around our psychological understanding of how the mind works has really influenced you know all the different types of therapies we have whether it's cbt dbt mindfulness and the like and i really have enjoyed launching groups that have different types of modalities Um, so in some ways people may not be comfortable going to psychodynamic group but they'd be much more open to starting with a mindfulness group which is say six sessions it's very structured Um, And then I also had the experience recently, which was a really um, an important experience for me, where I ran a transgender group in our clinic for about a year and a half. We have a new kind of subspecialty clinic uh, within our clinic uh, called the Imagine Clinic, and it works with LGBTQ plus uh, members of the community. And I was asked to pair up uh, with a resident who uh, actually is transgender and we ran this group together, and it was uh, an amazing experience. Uh, just my relationship with her uh, and learning about uh, what it means to be transgender and working with the, uh, the members of our group and what they go through, uh, the importance of language. Like, that was, uh, it was almost like learning a different language. Uh, it was very intense and learning about gender expression and fluidity of sexuality and uh, the importance of pronouns and um, I think which is becoming much more uh, mainstream now. Um, and, and just the relationship with uh, my fellow resident was one that uh, was been very meaningful to me and just where she t- 
taught me a lot about what it means to be transgender and uh, about the community. And she's done a lot of teaching within our medical system. Mm -hmm. Well, just even as you're talking about that, I'm, I'm hearing the way you're talking about it and how much you learned from that experience of running a group with people that have different identities than the one you have. And um, I'm thinking about, it sounds like you got as much, if not more, out of that as the leader or co-leader than the other members of the group in terms of learning so much about what you hadn't known before. Uh, I joke about that with her and say that I think I learned more than she did and the other group members during our experience. And we, we have a good laugh about that. And uh, we'd like to maybe write a, an article together about our experience. And I, I actually learned the hard way uh, what it means to be transgender from her because I was in a group supervision at one point and she wasn't there that day and I was talking about my experience in this group and I happened to mention that you know being cisgender in a group of people who are transgender and working with someone who's transgender uh, this is you know it's very difficult for me and there were some noises in the group that I didn't really pay attention to and later, one of my colleagues came up and said, you know, what was wrong with so-and-so? They had a really strong reaction uh, when you were talking. And I said, I didn't even notice it. Um, let me follow up with that person. And I ended up finding out that, um, that this resident had not told some of the members or hadn't told the members of her class yet that she was transgender. Oh. And I had basically told them without her permission. And she, I later spoke with her about it, and I was very embarrassed and she was a little upset at first, but then realized that, you know, I meant no harm. And, and, and now I think she's been much more open uh, within the program. Um, and I even asked her today, uh, before today that I would, in talking about our experience together, could I share? And she said that was fine. And I said I wanted to honor our agreement um, that, I, that I would talk to her first before discussing her, her experience. Well, that's wonderful. And it helps me to think about co-leading in the dynamics of making mistakes and the importance of uh, being able to make mistakes and then to address them and repair them with our co-leaders or, or any time that we um, kind of in a moment of um, obliviousness end up um, acting out or, or hurting or uh, causing harm in a way that's not intended, but that occurs. And then the way that we use the relationship to address that and repair that. Yes, and it was a very uh, powerful experience when our group was ending and we met individually with one of the members and that member who I had kind of grown close with uh, turned to me and said, you know, I really feel like you understand me. Uh, and then she turned to my co-leader and said, you know, we, we butted heads a lot and I really appreciate you hanging in there. And I think that this member felt very competitive with, with my co-leader and uh, she actually felt that I was able to understand it, even though I'm not transgender. So that really meant a lot to me. Hmm, I would imagine. And how did you and your co-leader kind of work with some of the dynamics between the two of you? Because you guys are co in a sense. However, there's quite there's a huge difference between where you guys are hierarchically, uh, between the identities that you and the localities that you each embody. I'm wondering how you guys worked with some of that difference within the context of your co-leading relationship. Well, that's a great question, and I think we had to be pretty frank with each other up front about uh, what our relationship would be like and what we were going to learn from each other. And she was very open to me teaching her about group, and I said, 
and I really don't know much about this, and I'm really looking to you to be helpful. And so I would have things happen in the group where I may not ask a question of what someone was talking about, and then after group I would ask her, what, what, what did this mean, and can you help me understand that better? And then she got really excited when I went home, and I was talking to my kids, and I was trying to explain to them the differences of you know, gender expression and those types of things. And so I went back and I told her and she was so excited for me and, you know, it was like congratulating me. So I felt like, you know, uh, I felt like a, a young school kid again who had done something well and wanted to tell their teacher. Right. And so I, I was really excited to, to share that with her. And, and so we, we had a very different relationship than I've had with most of the trainees that uh, I work with. And so that was quite that was a really powerful experience for me it sounds like well it sounds like communication was so open between the two of you yes and as I said you know earlier with my mistake uh, I was forced in a way to really be much more upfront and open with her Hmm. uh, about um, my experience and feeling like I'm uh, an outsider and again going back to what I was talking about when I first started about having one foot in one foot out uh, is that you know, there was a want to be kind of part of that community at the same time, knowing that I'm really not as much part of that community. And so that was really a, uh, a good lesson for me. Mm-hmm. You know, with the Four Corners Conference coming up, my wheels are turning around the two of you co-leading a group again, maybe an institute. Oh, well, I hadn't thought about that. We'll <laughs> need to talk about that more. Right. Here I am nominating you on air. <laughs> Well, we're approaching the end of the interview, and what I often like to find out is what um, a growing edge is and anything you might speak to in terms of where you see yourself um, wanting to explore a new edge or a new horizon in your own group leadership. I read an article a long time ago about the evolution of the group leader and how at the beginning you kind of don't know what's going on and then you start learning some things and then you feel like you actually have control in the group uh, and then then you continue to lead groups and realize you have no control in the group and that you have to trust the group. Uh, and I think I'm getting to that point now where I realize that even though I know some things about groups that I'm really not in control, mm-hmm. uh, that I can help guide and work with the groups. And it's really a parallel I think in both my new leadership role as well as a group leader that that I have to be able to learn how to empower people rather than um, force them into doing things and I think that's a bit of a trick for me Mm -hmm. uh, to learn how to um, hone those skills Mm -hmm. Uh, so not necessarily just in being a psychotherapist and a group leader but also a leader within an organization Mm -hmm. and how my small group interacts with all the other groups throughout the hospital system and the university system and it's uh it's a lot to to digest yeah well it seems like such an alive question what does it really mean to lead or what does it really mean to empower when the group itself has really its own life and its own will in a way yes yeah Well, Brian, it has been so wonderful to have you on the podcast. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Angela. This has been really fun. We'll talk again soon. I I hope so. Hello, I'm Mark Azoulay, and I'm the president of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. I want to let you know that we've just recently launched our new website, fcgps.org. This website is a directory of all of our members. If you buy a listing for $40 a year, it allows you to list your groups, your practice, as well as any jobs or internship opportunities you may be providing to our members. 
Our goal is that this website will become a pillar of the psychotherapy industry and be a place for both clients and professionals to find treatment options that fit them. So please visit our website at fcgps.org and sign up for membership.